So then I think this also leads to the question, which is raised by uh, James Sweet, pre- president of the AHA, is, is what is what is the purpose of this? The 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 political ends to which these two different approaches are are being put, or do you think they're they're genuinely not political? Do you think that you could confine their analysis to the academy? Because I feel like there would be a lot to make of that distinction. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. If you have these two broad different approaches, I think it's pretty clear that the lacrimose conception doesn't really have a solution. I mean, that's the point of it, right? It's just oppression is hard and there's no way out of it. And um, whereas the agency version of it enjoins a kind of resistance. Um, and that's not to say that people in black studies aren't interested in resistance or, uh, but it, but the, the routes to it are a lot harder to identify because if the, uh, object of study is just how bad everything is, then there's not a lot of inquiry about how things might productively change. And it used to be the case that, uh, in black studies, which has been such a sort of flagship, uh, area of inquiry for all this kind of thing in the United States, uh, it used to be that a lot of, a lot of the research was on forms of resistance, which forms were effective, the civil rights movement, slavery, slave uh, resistance. And, and part of that inquiry was about which methods work. And I think now that we're into uh, a more lacrimose phase of writing, it's a little harder to distinguish from that kind of writing what to do other than to be really worried and, and really upset about what's happened. Do you think that's just linked to the, to the place that liberalism finds itself in broadly, broadly speaking? Um, because it's, it's interesting that, that the New York Times has been such a proponent of the lacrimose conception of American history. And I just want to just highlight, I, Daniel and I are not making any truth claims. Um, we're not evaluating the scholarship. We're just talking about its social role, I, just, just to be clear. Like, what does that reflect about the current state of modern liberalism and, 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 and its ideas for reform? Because to me, it suggests that it's quite pessimistic in a moment. The, the, the organs of elite liberalism are, are quite pessimistic about, you know, the, uh, what was the famous Gersel essay, the, the protean character of American liberalism. It's not clear where that proteanness is going to go now. And, and that's what I find so interesting when comparing it with, with um, a book like Indigenous Continent about how that's a totally different uh, approach. And I, I have a follow-up question, but I, I'm curious what you think it might be connected to there. I think it's enormously pessimistic. And I don't believe that this is a conspiracy that the authors of the 1619 Project or their sympathetic editors at the New York Times thought, you know what, let's get across a view of black history that uh, blocks off any possibility for change because this is part of a sort of ongoing project of oppression. I mean, that's that would be absurd. But um, yeah, it's right. I think I think, you know, a generation ago, uh, a New York Times sponsored look at black history would have talked about major victories and major figures like uh, Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr., who just don't really anchor the 1619 Project and actually don't anchor a lot of our thought anymore. So where does uh, Native Studies fit into that larger conversation? And, and if, you're, if you're able, I'd love to hear your, your gloss or your take on, on how resistance became such an important part of the historian's toolkit. Because by the time I entered graduate school in 2007, that was the mainstream. Like the mainstream yeah. was like, I, I read James Scott, you know, I, I read all of these, you know, books on domination and the arts of resistance and all, all of that good stuff. And, and it, it, it does seem, it, resistance studies as an approach does seem to be in an interesting liminal space right now. Yeah, and if you push it too far, it's just everything is resistance and power doesn't really work because people are always 
undermining it or sabotaging it or or something like that. So how does this play into the larger story then of American foreign policy? Because I think this is also something that we that we talk about in our field, which is the role that one should imagine the United States playing in history. So this gets to some writing that you've done, Danny, which I thought was so interesting. Um, so you had this piece with Fred Lokval that was very controversial on how we should think about U.S. power. And I, I, I mean, don't tell me to summarize your own work to you, but the argument that no, I took please, away- I don't even know what I'm saying half the time. Yeah, 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 so yeah, no, it was great. So the argument that I took away from it is that we have been so interested in studying all the locales and the, the ways that people have received U.S. power and dealt with it and channeled it and translated it and subverted it, uh, that we've kind of missed the basic fact of it, that if you, if you spend all your time looking at just, you know, the, the, the people who've kind of borne the burden of that power, you sometimes- it sometimes sort of evaporates before your eyes and you miss just like the thudding fact that U.S. leaders have not had to contemplate uh, the effects of their actions and they've just have been able to, frankly, bomb countries at will. Uh, and and so where to strike the balance between acknowledging just the overwhelming weight of U.S. power after 1945?